Good morning, folks, and thank you for tuning in to The Global Current, the School of Diplomacy and International Relations weekly podcast. This is your host, Valentina Rejarena. Welcome. We are here with our very own St. Hall students, Jackie Ballard and Brady Black. As the School of Diplomacy's premier podcast, we break down a new topic in international news each week and ask the question, is diplomacy the answer? This week's topic, we are discussing the Armenian and Azerbaijan conflict over the region of Nagorno-Karabakh. We will be dissecting this topic as each of our analysts argue their respective sides on whether diplomacy is the answer to this international dilemma. Later, we will have our briefer give us an update on what else is going on this week. Now, our briefer Claudia Harper will give us an overview of this week's topic. Good morning, Valentina. So the conflict in Nagorno-Karabakh, which is known to Armenians as Artsakh, began decades ago. In the late 1980s, both Azerbaijan and Armenia were newly independent from the disintegrating Soviet Union. The inhabitants of Nagorno-Karabakh led a movement to succeed from Azerbaijan and then join Armenia. It was initially peaceful, but by 1992, ethnic tensions had led to violence and eventually war. Though they eventually came to a ceasefire, they never signed a peace treaty. This left the area controlled by ethnic Armenians, but officially recognized as Azerbaijani territory. The region is locally governed and recognized by Armenians as the Republic of Artsakh. Fast forward to 2020, fighting broke out again on September 27th, with Azerbaijan considered to be on the offensive. On October 10th, however, both parties agreed to a ceasefire facilitated by Russian officials. However, the very next day, Azerbaijani forces reported that Armenia was initiating violence. By October 13th, the two parties were continuing their fighting, both claiming that the other side had violated the ceasefire. Just the other night on October 20th, Azerbaijani President Ilham Aliyev announced that Azerbaijan had seized various settlements in Nagorno-Karabakh. And just the other day, Armenian Prime Minister Nikol Pashinyan is now claiming that there is no way to settle the Nagorno-Karabakh issue through diplomacy. Thank you, Claudia. All right, let's get to it. Thank you so much for each of you for joining me here via video chat. So my first question really is, you know, can you give me a little bit more of the history of these countries? What are their cultures like? Why does each country believe that this region belongs to them? So um, specifically in regards to Armenia, the Armenian identity is very, very strong um, because of their religion. They consider themselves to be the first Christian nation and they practice a branch of Christianity called the Armenian Apostolic Church. Um, also, they have a sense of identity because of their language and their history of oppression. Um, there was an Armenian genocide that began in 1914 through 1917, and it resulted in the death of over 1.5 million Armenians by the Turkish people. So because of this, they have a very strong identity. And similarly, the Azeris have a very strong identity because of their religion. They follow a sect of Islam known as Shia Islam. However, they're very tolerant of other religions, including the Sunni Muslims in Turkey and Jews in Israel. And they have a very deep sense of culture because of their language, their religion, their customs, and their history. So altogether, both of these nations have a very deep cultural and ethnic appreciation. Thank you, Jacqueline. Brady, did you want to add to that? Yes, I did. 
So Armenia, Azerbaijan, and the state of Georgia is also in the region. Um, and that's in the Caucasus Mountains. Been a very important outpost for many centuries, and it's usually been under control of stronger empires. It was under Persian Empire for a long time. It's been under Ottoman rule, and then later the Russian Empire, and then the Soviet Union. So they have not been independent states for very long until the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. And so I would add that because of this continued kind of oppression of autonomy. That adds to their identity, which, as Jacqueline said, is very strong. Thank you, Brittany. What were the terms like for the previous ceasefire? Um, so, according to Al Jazeera, the first ceasefire negotiation happened on October 10th, and it was brokered in Russia after a bunch of marathon talks between the two sides. However, this was quickly broken. Um, the actual cause. So the conflict is disputed. Both countries claim that the other country was the one who broke the ceasefire. However, a second ceasefire came a week later on Sunday after the Russian foreign minister spoke to Armenian and Azerbaijani counterparts by phone. Um, however, this ceasefire has also been broken and there is the same disputation that's occurring where each side claims that the other side is breaking it first by starting violence. With what Claudia said, with the ceasefire that was enforced on the 10th, that Armenia is said to have broken. After that ceasefire was negotiated, I think um, this was on BBC, I think it was both Azerbaijan and Turkey said the only way it would be continued is if Armenia withdrew from the region. So it seems like this problem just cannot be resolved. And you mentioned Turkey. I'm curious. Who backs up Armenia if Turkey is on the same side as Azerbaijan? Officially, Iran is a very good ally of Armenia, not for really any political reasons, but because in Iran, uh, there is a large portion of Azeri Turks living in the country. And so, of course, they support Azerbaijan. Um, and so, in sort of an effort to keep down this sort of Azeri nationalism. Iran has paired better with Armenia and has better deals with them. So they are seemingly more on Armenia's side. And then there's also Russia, which is kind of reported to be have better relations with Armenia. They have a few military bases in Armenia, but they also have really good relations with Azerbaijan. And they haven't really officially picked a side. Uh, they kind of have always just tried to be the mediator in this conflict. Yeah, I'd like to add on to that a little bit. Russia, like Brady mentioned, is sort of playing mediator and playing the middle ground between the two countries because it's involved in the oil and gas trade deals with both of them. However, Russia does show a bit more support for Armenia because they're involved in the collective security treaty organization. And because of that, they do have economic and military ties to Armenia. It's very interesting. Thank you. Uh, hmm. So it's funny to see Russia playing the mediator between these two countries because we usually see more quote unquote democratic countries playing mediators, say the US and it's very 
um, respectable that Russia has stepped up to the plate and decided to try to end this and um, encourage peace talks between these two countries. Who does the international community believe that this land belongs to? What does the United Nations say about this? So officially, according to the United Nations, this territory is controlled by Azerbaijan. However, I think it's important to note that this region is 95% ethnically Armenian. So there's a lot of empathy throughout other nations, especially recently, where they're calling for this territory to be returned to Armenia. Yeah, and just like what Jacqueline was saying, it's recognized as part of Azerbaijan. Not even Armenia recognizes Nagorno-Karabakh as its own country, but as she said, a lot of ethnic Armenians in the region and Armenia controls a lot of area around the region too. It's very difficult to divvy up this area given that it's mostly ethnically Armenian, but then it internationally technically belongs to Azerbaijan. How did the most recent ceasefire talks go? Do we know how long these talks were for? Who was in the room? What did they really agree to for now? Because I know I read an article personally where they were in the room for maybe five hours straight. And it was very interesting to know that they did not want to be there whatsoever, of course. But Russia bringing them together as a mediator said that this is something that must happen. And the Azerbaijan um, president was also just very adamant and giving kind of this national announcement to his people that he will not be giving up no matter what. And it's kind of scary to see. He demanded that all the men in the country be brought in to fight. And that's, you know, we keep seeing these casualties and wondering how long is this going to go? You know, how helpful can Russia really be in the long term at this point? Can we think of anything else that we believe that might be helpful for the future? and for peace talks? Yeah, I think that Russia is such a powerful country, especially within these um, countries that are so closely related in the mountains of Caucasus. If Russia decided to seriously get involved, it could use force and in the conflict immediately. However, I don't believe that Russia will be doing this anytime soon because it's more interested in finding a diplomatic solution and also, it's preoccupied with the conflict in Syria, Ukraine, and Libya at the moment. And even if Russia decided to end this conflict by force or maybe by imposing sanctions or some other strongman type of solution, it wouldn't change the fact that Armenia and Azerbaijan have a very, very deep ethnic and religious issue going on that can't be solved by a third party. I would also add that it probably is not in Russia's best interest for this issue to be fully resolved for uh, a few different reasons. 
For one, going back to when Armenia and Azerbaijan were part of the Soviet Union, uh, this region was part of Azerbaijan, and then it was given to Armenia. But then under Stalin, it was given back to Azerbaijan um, because in Stalin's mind, he knew that it was uh, a point of contention between Armenia and Azerbaijan. He figured it would keep the two of them fighting and it wouldn't make them join up and rebel against the Soviet Union. And also, since the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia has really been trying to keep its influence in the post-Soviet states. And with Armenia and Azerbaijan, and, and really the whole Caucasus, including Georgia, they don't have great relations, especially with Georgia, because of the Russia-Georgian War in 2008 that caused a whole other conflict that ridiculous is ridiculous. Um, but to kind of keep Russia's influence in, they've acted as the mediator pretty much since the end of this conflict, because that way Armenia and Azerbaijan are still going at each other. Um, and in that sense, they'll kind of keep destroying each other. And so they could never really leave Russia's economic bloc. That's a very good point you make. Thank you, Brady, that, you know, Russia practically would have them in the palm of their hands. And, you know, because I'm thinking Russia is very powerful, you know, militarily. I believe that, you know, we know that they, they are working very hard on bombs, uh, weapons, just overall um, things. And, you know, if they were to be backing somebody, they could easily allow that country to end the other country quickly. Um, you know, obviously that's not the best way to do it, the most diplomatic way to do it, but if they wanted to be efficient or at least time efficient, they would end it quick. So I'm, I was really wondering why Russia would not do that. But if it's because of what you just mentioned, where they would rather have these two countries destroy themselves and then still have that control without really lifting a finger. It's very interesting to note that. Thank you. Um, I think it's also worth noting that Russia is very wise to stay out of the conflict right now because of the huge consequences if it's if it joins. Um, I think we mentioned before, Brady specifically, that Azerbaijan and Armenia, Armenia are huge oil and gas pipelines that Russia is deeply economically involved with. And if it was to get involved in this conflict, essentially it would have to choose a side which would be hugely detrimental to its relations with the other country. So it's in Russia's best interest to stay out of the conflict and try to negotiate a peaceful ceasefire. Mm -hmm. um, just one more point, I would also add um, that they would not want to get involved because, like Jacqueline said, involvement in other conflicts, um, but also getting involved in another conflict where they can't say, um, like what they said in Ukraine, where, oh, well, there's a huge enclave of ethnic Russians in here who are being oppressed or something, when there aren't really any, if at all, ethnic Russians in Nagorno-Karabakh. And so it would be a really unpopular move with the people to get involved in another conflict that they really don't have any say in. Thank you. Yeah, you know, it, it seems like their interests are just a huge part of how this is going. Because, you know, um, 
given that oil is such a big um, resource in this uh, area, you know, I saw that this might have been a reason why Azerbaijan felt so emboldened to um, start fighting as well, because their GDP is way larger than um, Armenia's. And given that their GDP is way larger, they were able to invest way more in military. And when they did, they were able to just feel so emboldened to start fighting way more. And, you know, Armenia was not prepared for that whatsoever. And maybe Russia just feels bad and they're just like, please, let's stop this. Uh, but, you know, can diplomacy really be the answer? Or do we need an intervention, a physical intervention? Because we see that diplomacy has been attempted and it's ceasefire after ceasefire just keeps being broken. What can be the future of this? Yeah, um, usually as a diplomacy student, I, was, I would always advocate for diplomacy. I think that especially within international conflicts, you always need to take that element into account to try and solve these issues. However, with Russia and with even other countries, like the US and France have been involved in trying to make these relations for almost 20 years now through the Minsk group. But it just seems like as much as these nations try to use diplomacy to resolve the conflict between Armenians and Azerbaijanis, diplomacy has not been the answer so far. So I think it may be time to look for a different solution, whether that is a solution that requires brute force. I don't think we know yet. However, this goes, this is a much deeper conflict than simply a territorial dispute. And I think whoever and whatever nations are trying to solve this issue need to take that into account. I would argue that um, usually with diplomacy, and the, there's a conflict like this, there's a third party involved that doesn't really have a stake in it, like Russia or the US or whatever. Um, I would argue in this case, it would just have to be between Armenia and Azerbaijan, because it seems like involvement with, or involvement from any third party has just kind of made these negotiations fall flat. And I know because it's such an important mountain range Obviously, a lot of world powers are interested in it, and with the oil pipeline, it's a crucial region. But I would argue if diplomacy would be the answer, it would have to be between Armenia and Azerbaijan only. Thank you, Brady. Now, it's it's an interesting point just to like mention that the U.S. has stayed completely quiet uh, during this. And I know that they have been involved previously, a couple years back, and ceasefire talks, but given President Trump America first mentality, where he says he does not want to be involved in any other international conflict, you know, it's been difficult for people to kind of have more supporters for this, for these peace talks. You know, we, I do agree that um, it should be Armenia and Azerbaijan talking directly with each other, but it really seems like both sides are a little hard-headed and they do not want to even come up with a solution. Who knows? Any final points, folks? 
Um, yeah, I think it's really interesting that you mentioned that because this area isn't just of te territorial significance. Um, because of their religion, that's why the Nagorno-Karabakh territory is so important to them, that the Armenians believe that it has been their land for over 2,500 years, and if their side lost, it would mean the annihilation of the Karabakh Armenians and perhaps Armenia itself. However, we have Azerbaijan on the other side where they talk about the importance of Karabakh to their sense of what it means to be Azerbaijani. So I think in that sense, it's important to recognize that third parties might not necessarily have a say in this conflict. Yeah, I would agree with Jacqueline. These are very old cultures that are like even older than uh, the countries that are trying to get involved. And so it goes back to my uh, earlier point that it should just be the two of them trying to figure out a solution. And maybe there won't, maybe a permanent solution won't become because of it, but I'd say that's probably the best option for diplomacy being the answer. All right, thank you folks. Yeah, honestly, I hope that if they do not come up with an agreement, because it is hard to try to take something that's so deeply rooted in their culture away from another country and the sense of pride just refuses to let somebody else do that to them. So I understand why these countries would fight to the very end. Uh, I just hope they realize that they are losing people. They are losing resources. They are losing just, you know, lives really that are just most important and is what makes up their countries. So hopefully there's going to be a solution to this. But thank you so much for coming in and speaking to us, folks. Really appreciate it. So that's all the time we have for today. I really learned a lot from you guys, Brady and Jacqueline. Thanks for being here. Um, so let's tune into this week's breakdown brought to us by our briefer, Claudia. So the BBC reported um, just today that the Pope announced same-sex couples should be allowed to form civil unions. These are reportedly the clearest remarks he has made on the issue of same-sex marriage. Um, however, this isn't necessarily indicative of doctri doctrinal change. Um, and the New York Times reported that in Nova Scotia, commercial fishermen are targeting indigenous people for exercising their rights to hunt and fish. In Nova Scotia, lobstering is highly competitive, so non-indigenous fishermen consider uh, indigenous fishermen who have extended rights to fish and hunt as a threat to the industry. Um, BBC also reported that unrest is growing in Lagos, Nigeria, where people are protesting the their police force there which is called the special anti-robbery squads the nigerian police and army reportedly killed 12 protesters on tuesday but the nigerian army denies that this even happened 
marking it as fake news. CNN reports that Thailand's government has vowed to protect the monarchy as protesters rally for a new democratic pro uh, constitution. Protesters are taking the social media and risking jail time for the movement. And The Guardian warns that a second wave of the pandemic means thousands of pending deaths. British health officials are dreading the inevitable disaster as cases are rising by the day. And that is all. Thank you, Claudia. That wraps up this week's show. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for updates on upcoming shows. This show couldn't be made possible without executive producer Bella Fisher, assistant producer Jared Dang, technical producer Brittany Segarra, assistant technical producer Jason Marieski, and our interview producer Team Fan. I'm your host, Valentino de Herrera, and I thank you for tuning in. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University. Be sure to tune in every Sunday at 7.30 a.m. Eastern Time on 89.5 WSOU. See you soon.